This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. Each week, you'll hear powerful talks and compelling conversations from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. On this episode, we feature a conversation between musician John Batiste and the Institute's Walter Isaacson. Batiste is a vocalist and piano player who leads the band Stay Human. He also serves as the artistic director at large of the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. At 28, Batiste is considered by many to be one of the most exciting and progressive new crossover talents on the scene today. His modern take on the American songbook, which he calls social music, is equally influenced by his passion for jazz and classical styles. His music attracts critical acclaim and audiences from diverse backgrounds. Isaacson is the president and CEO of the Aspen Institute and has authored biographies of Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, and Benjamin Franklin. He recently wrote The Innovators, How a Group of Hackers, Geniuses, and Geeks Created the Digital Revolution. This lively conversation between the two New Orleans natives explores the roots of American jazz and asks how do we keep it alive for the next generation. You'll hear Batiste demonstrating many musical styles and influences on his melodica, which is both a mouth-blown reed instrument and a keyboard. So don't be too surprised if you find yourself tapping your toes and humming along. Here's Walter Isaacson and John Batiste. Thank you. John Batiste, as you know from his last name, is part of a three or four generation family in my hometown in New Orleans. Yeah. I've known and admired the Batiste family all the way through. I think the Batiste, the Nevilles, mm-hmm. and uh, Marsalises, mm-hmm. all from the uh, same neighborhood, and yep. um, all taught each other how to play. And yes. I think. Um, I think, uh, is it true that uh, Wenton has sort of been a mentor of yours, Wenton Marsalis? That's right. You know, I remember uh, when I was 14, I met Wenton for the first time. And we played basketball. And then he won. And I was like, man, how did this old guy win? <laughs> but then after that, we, we became very close when I moved to New York. I went to Juilliard and I got there when I was 17. So that was a few years later. And he's the artistic director of Jazz at Lincoln Center. And over the years, I've been doing stuff with them, lucky enough to get a few awards from there and play with his band. And he's really been very helpful in helping me to construct my vision in terms of the music education side of things and also jazz in the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you and Wenton both do, and you in particular now, is take jazz but also make it for a millennial generation. You're able to make it into social music, make it into something new, but still keeping the roots, right? I mean, is that your goal? You you have to start from somewhere. (laughs) So, you know, the beauty of jazz is that it can accommodate all styles of music. Mm -hmm. You can take jazz and you can put rock in it and it's still jazz. Well, you can take jazz, you can put blues in it, it's jazz. You can take jazz, you can put any style of music into it and it keeps its integrity. But if you take another style of music and you put jazz into that style, it turns into something else. So something about jazz is, um, is magical in that way. Does that come from the roots of jazz around 1900 when so much is flowing in? Well, New Orleans, my hometown, is a big part of that, that change in America because you have all of these people coming together and say you have a party, right? Yeah and you go to the party, what do the people at the party dance to? What music do you play? If you have the French there and the Spanish and the Irish, the Africans there and they have the drums, and then you have all of these people that they have their own folk music, but they've never been together, especially in a social context like well, that. Well, let's list all the things that come together in the 1880s to 1900 in New Orleans. Did you say there's Congo Square with yes. the drums and the Africans? Oh Freed goodness. slaves, Jean de Couleur. You right. want to explain what those are? Well, when you have people who are slaves, but they also have their culture that they brought with them, and then they have this new culture, they're figuring out a way to acclimate to this new environment. That's what Congo Square was. Mm-hmm. In Africa, they would play the drums all the time as a religious expression, and Sunday was the day that they gave them as this is your day to have your culture and continue that tradition. So Congo Square became one of those places where people, especially the free slaves, could go and express this. I guess at that point it was a rebellion, but it was a silent rebellion. So what ends up happening with that is slowly more people figure out, oh man, 
this is where we go to get free. <laughs> yeah. This is where we go to do our thing. So then people started to like it. And once people started to like it, it became a part of the popular culture. And so hey, you also have the Creole orchestras? That's right. And go ahead. With that, that's where Jelly Roll Morton and figures like that come from, where you have the, I've often thought of you as a cross between Stevie Wonder and Jelly Roll Morton. So. Woo! <laughs> with the keyboards. <laughs> I love that. You know, Jelly Roll is, um, he's one of my bigger influences because he's one of the first guys to take the musical form that they created and all of this stuff that was happening, Gottschalk was as well, and write it down and put it into a context where you could give it to any musician of any style, classical musician who didn't improvise, or you could give it to a guy who didn't even read music, and they could come together and play on the same bandstand. Do you have anything you want to show us on the uh, Jelly Roll style? Oh, man. You okay, know, that's, always, that's too easy of a question? <laughs> no, I love that. <laughs> so Jelly Roll, he's, um, he's got so many different elements in his music. You hear his music and you have the high part, which is the clarinet, all in the piano. You'll take all of these different sections. So you have the high section, which is. And that's the clarinet taking, I guess, the obligati. It's like a bird flying in the sky. And then in the middle, you got the trumpets. And that's the melody. Then at the bottom you have the trombones, and the trombones are kind of what they call tailgating, following behind and laying a foundation for the trumpet, and then still got a clarinet that's flying on the top, so the trombone is. And that's also what the tuba is doing at the bottom, doing the bass line. Unfortunately, I don't have enough keys to do that part. <laughs> yeah. But you can imagine. No, wait, take that melody, that Jelly Roll melody, and let's get non-chronological for a moment. Mm -hmm. How does that melody like, reflect itself now? Well, if you take something that is... <laughs> pentatonic. Five no scale. Yeah, that's the basis of all pop music right now. In terms of the harmonies, in terms of the melodies, all of it is pentatonics. So you take a song like, um, by Lord, and we'll never be royals. It's all pentatonic. And Jelly Roll was doing that way back then. <laughs> and so you have Jelly Roll, and he's sort of a honky-tonk uh, piano player, Creole mm. to some extent. What other influences are coming in at that time? You have the European classical music influence coming in. And like Foxtrot orchestras? Yes. You have, uh, you have the marching ensembles, John Philip Sousa. And that's coming like the Spanish-American War is over and they're right. all hocking their trumpets and cornets down in New Orleans, right on Dryad Street. Well, the thing about Dryads, and if you look at the history of it, Dryads all the way down to um, the Treme, where now you see the whole culture of the second line of the Mardi Gras Indians still alive, mm -hmm. is um, that's the first time that people actually could see the music in the street and see the transformation of it from the first time the bass drum was very straight and you have marching bands. And wait, wait, that bass drum that we still have comes from the Spanish-American War Exactly. Marches? Cool. So if you take the way they played the bass drum, that's the more straight. Doom, 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 doom. And they have the tuba is? Tuba is mimicking it. Gotcha. Doom, doom. So it's kind of like walking in step. You know, you see them people marching, their feet be going all the way out. Doom, doom, doom. It's like they're marching in step, and the tuba is on the other side, so boom, da, boom, da, boom, da. And then in New Orleans, during that time when so much stuff was coming in, the Africans took that rhythm, and then the Creoles took that rhythm, and they had different ways of playing it. Show me. 
Well, first, the, the, the Creole, the, yeah, yeah. So they have a backbeat? Yeah, so they put a little bit more of this kind of funky thing on it. Wait, explain what a Creole is. Well, a Creole is when you have the Spanish and the Africans, and they mix in New Orleans. This is a special kind of a, there's the Cajun Creole, which is in Lafayette, Louisiana, which is where my grandfather's yeah, from. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah. Lafayette, and then you have the Creoles who came into New Orleans in Congo Square. And Jelly Roll Martin was really a part of that. Sidney Boucher was also a part of that. And you, um, you see that culture But even with Baptiste, uh, Marsalis, Neville, Boucher, yeah. somewhat European names, African-American, European, Babaran is the, Oscar Babaran was the one in, really, Oscar, you knew, right? Yeah. Okay. So show me how that comes together. Could that work with a tuba and bass drum? Oh, yes. The tuba and the bass drum would add the funk to it. You heard how it had the kind of parlor music vibration, mm -hmm. which is the French thing. And then you also have the, um, the blues into it, mm -hmm. which is the folk music of that. But where did the blues come from? It's the same period, 1880, well, 1900? The blues came from two different strains. First, the blues came from the gospel tradition and the spirituals. And this is um, when you start to get, you talk about the Spanish, the Spanish also brought the guitars over. Hmm. So when you get the guitars in the hand of somebody like Robert Johnson, he doesn't know the Spanish tradition, so he comes up with his own way of playing. So Robert Johnson's basically a, a blues player, you right. say, right? Show, show me something that he would have done. Woo! So that's the blues stream. Yeah. We're making a jambalaya, right? Or a it's gumbo. a whole lot. Is it left, like we went and say it's a gumbo. A gumbo. <laughs> so we're making a gumbo, <laughs> and you got the blues, and that comes in maybe from the Mississippi Delta and the plantations, yeah. right? But then you have the Appalachian folk music. And then if you go to the mountains, they got fiddles. Uh-oh. And then you got stuff like Boil Them Cabbage Down and different folk songs that are also a part of the blues. Mm -hmm. That's the thing about America, man. There's so much stuff going on at the same time. And when you put it together, jazz kind of captured it and funneled it into one art form that's developed over 100 years. Yeah, by the way, we keep leaping forward, so let's do it again. You have Robert Johnson, you have all this coming together. Show me how that's reflected maybe in 21st century. Oh, yeah. Okay, so take something like... Uh, so that's Jimi Hendrix, voodoo child, you know, I'm a voodoo child, 
Lord knows I'm voodoo child. Oh, yeah. So Jimmy was, he was basically a blues musician. Then you take Jimmy, how he influenced all the rock and roll, and you take that idea all the way to now, you got people like Gary Clark Jr. playing blues and but stuff But that's like that. because you got the guitar coming in. Right. How does the guitar come in? You said partly Appalachian? No, 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 that's okay. the fiddle. That's the fiddle, gotcha. The fiddle is, is like uh, when you have folk songs, like um, I can play an example. Sure. It ain't gonna sound like a fiddle, but. <laughs> We got good ears. <laughs> Did the fiddle really become an ingredient in the gumbo of jazz? The fiddle became an ingredient because when you listen to the fiddle music that is now like folk music and uh, I guess you could say bluegrass music, mm -hmm. that continued in a different strain and created its own thing similar to jazz and mm -hmm. there's a repertoire for that. But if you play with those musicians and you play with jazz musicians, I feel like it's almost the easiest conversation musically to have. It's like cousins. Mm -hmm. It's like we can play a blues. They have blueses that they play too. Mm -hmm. We can play something that's like um, based on a rhythm changes form or something. Sort of like, like that. that scene in Deliverance. Exactly. Conversation. Right. It's a musical conversation. Hmm. And uh, going back to the blues, you mentioned the spirituals and the, I would say, sanctified church. Is that mm -hmm. right? Uh, are those very similar or is that two different strands, sort of the spirituals of the, of the church music? Well, spirituals and gospel music are different. Spirituals were, were more about the um, slaves, and that was what transitioned into gospel music, which is when you have the church. And then that's like um, the difference between gospel and blues, when you ask that question, is secular and non-secular. The blues was basically a secular version of what gospel music was, and it still is. Or do they have a similar, say, melodic or backbeat or tempo strands? It's similar, but over time it changed because the instrumentation changed. At the beginning it was the same, you just had hand claps and voices. Give me an example. It's like, uh, you got something like, see like, this little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. Oh, this little light of mine. Oh, I'm gonna let it shine. Oh, let me tell you that this little light of mine. Oh, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. So that's gospel. Show me how it'd be done in the blues. The blues is still the same right here. Mm, 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 mm. Oh, Margie, uh, oh, won't you leave me alone? <laughs> oh, Margie, won't you go back home? I say, oh, Margie, girl, won't you leave me alone? Ooh. <laughs> I say, oh, Margie, oh, won't you go back home? <laughs> I get it now. It's the same. The All right, world. so we're hitting 1901, let us say. Yeah. Oh, uh oh. Uh -oh. What happens uh -oh. then? Uh oh. Uh oh. Ha! The man. Well, Louis Armstrong is um, born August, in August. You know, he used to say it was, was July he, 4th. Yeah, we almost at his birthday that he celebrated. Right. Because for his whole life, he says he was born July 4th, 1900. Right. Why did he say that? If it, he want, I think it was partly he wanted maybe to enlist because he was in the, the waif's home. And right. He was in a foster home. 
or uh, orphanage home, uh, and he had to lie about his age, mm -hmm. or is it just Louis Armstrong being Louis Armstrong? I think it's both, man, <laughs> because he's an enigma. Even if you go to his museum, which was his house, and you got a guy who's um, Corona Queens, you're talking Corona about? Queens, yeah. and he's world famous, and he's living in this very humble house, and you see him. People that I know that have met him would talk about seeing him in a bar and he's sitting down and you go talk to him and it's like, it's Louis Armstrong, where you at Pops? And then Pops just sit there, hey man, and have an hour long conversation with him. It's yeah. very, but, but that kind of figure out, I think you, you can't really know what was going on in his head because on the outside he has this very humble disposition, but then he's also one of the greatest geniuses of all time. You like, know, I want to say, there? I hate when the moderator's but I want to add yeah. one personal thing. For about six years, I worked on the biography of Louis Armstrong over the time. Mm. And by the end, I knew every single thing about Louis Armstrong, mm. except for who he was. That's what I'm saying. I couldn't figure <laughs> out why he was smiling. Yeah. I didn't know whether he was happy. Yeah. I didn't know whether he liked white folks. I didn't know yeah. nothing about yeah. him. And I gave it up because I couldn't crack the code. So help me crack the code. Man, Pops. Well, the first thing about Pops that you, you have to realize is he came from the lowest possible situation at the time. I mean, he, he was in a single parent home. He was young with, with no money and to the point where they said, okay, you gotta go live in the home. So that's when he went to the Waves home. And then when he was living there, he was getting in trouble until somebody gave him a trumpet and they gave him the trumpet and they were like, man, well, what do you think you can do with this? And I think, I have a theory that he was like one of those people where you give him the instrument and the first time they play it, you hear something about them. It's like, oh man, that sounds incredible. Yeah. You should take that up. So I think the trumpet kind of saved him and also changed American music at the same time. That was a great moment. Give me an example of an early Louis Armstrong. I guess it's King Oliver, Kidori's band. What's mm -hmm. he playing in back then? Let's see. West End Blues? You want to do that? Or? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a little, I'm going to play something even earlier than okay, that. Okay, fine. Like, um, you say, uh, Tell us about that. It's his rhythm. That's what changed everything. Before him, it was just kind of like. More or less very straight. And then he took that same melody and would say, okay, check this out. So what's that called when you take the rhythm and you just move it, what, a quarter beat? Yes, yeah, little shifts every yeah, here so and there. Yeah, so what's that called? Soul. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I couldn't write, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, that's not the kind of thing that you can teach. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that you can actually say, okay, this is how you do it. So now you know how to do it. It's like he was born with some kind of divine insight, if you will. Have you ever heard Witten tell the story when he was, you, you first did a record maybe at 16, 17, mm -hmm. right? Witten's about 15, 16. His father, Alice Marsalis, who you know well, piano player mm -hmm. and teacher of music in New Orleans. Uh, do you know his story about uh, his dad giving him Louis Armstrong? No, what's that? Real quickly, uh, Winton says, you know, he's, 16, 15, doesn't like Louis Armstrong, mm. you know, waving the handkerchief, you know, <laughs> forget it. So Alice says, okay, here, play this. 
his jubilee, I think. Mm -hmm. And Winton's kind of cocky, and he starts, and he stays up all night. And by the next morning, he realizes he can't do that rhythm yet. I heard that one. Yeah. yeah, and he says, okay, I get it. The guy's a genius. But most people wouldn't think he was a genius, and even today. That's because his whole persona didn't have that kind of look like um, if you see Beethoven or you see pictures of all of the older musicians and you see them and you hear read stories about them and everything looks so serious. Like Beethoven it seemed like he never smiled for a picture ever. <laughs> it's like <laughs> Chopin be like <laughs> and you wonder like and man. Louis Armstrong. And Louis Armstrong like <laughs> <laughs> So it's like is that guy really the genius? So there's, there's that that's going on. And then he made decisions throughout his whole thing because he didn't really care about all that kind of thing. He, he wanted to be an ambassador to bring people together and bring people from all different cultures who may be in the jazz, maybe not in the jazz, different backgrounds into it. He, wasn't, um, he didn't think of himself in that kind of regard. Mm -hmm. Now, so what goes into making Louis Armstrong? Because I know he's his mother, who is a prostitute, and sort of leaves him after a while, but has him baptized in the Mississippi River, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. So very much part of the sanctified church. He's mm -hmm. there every day, almost. I think Perdido Street's where he's growing up. What, what else is there? He's marching bands in the quarter. Something. Marching bands in the quarter. Something that's not documented as much, but um, he, he said it a, a few times where he would be listening to opera on the streets of New Orleans mm. from the outside of the opera house, because people went to operas back then. So he'd be checking that out, even though he didn't have the money to check it out, he was in the neighborhood. And he would hear all of these people playing, and um, he said later, I mean, not a lot of people have checked it out, but you can actually hear it in his trumpet playing, the operatic sort of sentiment where He's playing through his horn, but he's singing. And a singer that he really was into was uh, Maria Tetrazzini. So this is a French opera, old French opera. Huh? Yeah. And he, he, he would listen to her. He would actually wait to see when she would play and go outside of the opera house and listen through the door. Huh. And uh, he says uh, at one point when he's thinking about playing a melody or anything, he just play it from the heart and sing it as if he was an opera singer. Show me. Ooh. <laughs> So that's the grandest, oldest spiritual we have, yeah, right? Yeah. Amazing Grace, with the French Opera House involved. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. So you have a, he explained a little bit to me even, although know, I grew up with it. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Kenner, Louisiana. Uh-oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, I was going to say, I grew up near where Louis Armstrong grew up, in mm -hmm. you know, Broadmoor Central City, right in the yeah. heart of town. Perdido Street, right. and what was interesting is that it's a grand mix of people, but you even had the French Opera House as close to what was then Black uh, Storyville, meaning you know, sort of a prostitution right. district, and he could go to the French Opera House, but he could also hear the honky-tonk players at the Storyville and other houses of prostitution. Well, well there were 
there, there are legends of that. And uh, he talks about that, the idea that when he was in that area, you would hear some of the greatest trumpet players alive. Who named the greatest alive? <laughs> well, at that time, the greatest alive unanimously was Buddy, Buddy Bolden. Bolden. And Buddy Bolden left us almost no recordings, right? None. none. There's just something that, um, I believe it was Bunk Johnson, another yeah. great trumpet player. Who played with, under Buddy Bolden. Right. Yeah. He was like, um, you know, if there were like four great ones, he was one of the four that Louis Armstrong looked up to. So Buddy, I thought I heard Buddy Bolden say, mm -hmm. give me some of that. Tell me about Buddy Bolden. March in there. I was about to say, we got the marching music back in. And that is people like Bunk Johnson saying, I thought I heard Buddy Bolden say, trying to transmit to us something right. that's never been recorded, never written down, but the greatest trumpet player of the time. Mm -hmm. Who dies in an insane asylum, right? Insane asylum to um, the point where he dies in obscurity. No, he disappears for a while. Nobody knows where he is. And there's just a legend that's left. No recordings. Did Louis Armstrong hear Buddy Bolden? He claimed to have heard him. I know. <laughs> he claimed to have heard him. He claimed that his sound was so big that he could hear it across the river. So he would blow, and he was like, man, you know it's Buddy Bolden playing when you can hear it just as clear as day, and it's miles away. So Louis Armstrong, uh, I was talking about race a little bit. As you say, he's from the poorest black part of town. Mm -hmm. But there's also the Creole orchestras playing further downtown. That's a more uh, higher society uh, Creole black culture. He's not allowed to play in those orchestras right away, right? There's some tension between the two black races. Right. Well, it, it, it's almost um, the, the time made it seem like the lighter skin, the better, even if you were still black. If you were lighter skinned, which is the Creoles, then they had more of, um, I guess you could say, an easier time acclimating to that society. Whereas Louis Armstrong, he was a genius, but nobody knew it yet. Yeah. So to them, it's like, oh, yeah, he's just another black So what are player. the Creole orchestras bringing into this mix? They bring that classical influence. Right. Like Jelly Roll, he wrote the music down. He rehearsed the music in a way that was very similar to like an orchestral rehearsal but then he would bring the soul of it into it. So at the end of the day, they wanted to find players who played in the legit way and in the not so legit way. So they finally mix it, mix it up. They mix it up. Show me. Whoo. <laughs> Beginning is Everything's come together then, right? Am I missing? I got the filet, the uh, okra, <laughs> I got the shrimps. Anything I'm missing in this no, gumbo? We, we covered it. We covered it's, it? It's all there, and over time it just it stayed there. It transformed into 
what we have now, and I think, um, you know, that's somebody like me, I feel like that's what I, I really draw from, the idea of taking all of that stuff that was kind of just by chance came together at the turn of the century. And you take that with all the stuff that's happened over the years and what's happening now with the internet and everybody being more connected than ever. The world is just so much more diverse and global now because everybody's kind of, you could talk to somebody in Japan at the touch of a button. So it becomes what you sometimes call social music. Yeah. Explain that. Social music is, is really about the idea of taking this foundation of jazz, but it's not really about the genre of music. You draw from all different styles. And you take that as a means of bringing different people together who may never have had a live music experience or never really think that you know, this is something that can change their life. And, um, so it almost draws on the philosophical and ideological roots of jazz, not just the musical roots. Exactly. Everybody's welcome. And that kind of idea really needs to be exemplified in all levels, from the performance to you know, the philosophical level, which we're talking about, to the idea of going into schools, music education, community centers, juvenile detention centers, all levels of people, from that to the exclusive level of people, where you know, they have an integration with somebody from a world that they may never interface with. So I think that's beautiful. Did you coin the term social music for what you do? Yeah, I like that. I call it social music. And uh, give me an example then of how you bring things together and make it social music. Is that the name of your latest album? Is that yeah, right? that's right. Okay, okay, okay. Social music. Um, actually, have we have a video on. of... Uh, video. Let's go to the video. I forgot about the vid. Thank you. You're welcome. When I start to get free, ain't no stopping me. Honestly, I think that's the best policy. That's how it be when you rollin' with your honey me. He said, hey, John Pat, tell my haters relax. You know I'm never, ever lying. I would stay in facts. So you know I'm right when I say we next to back. Cause we got to be, what got to be, right? People feel the music and they feel the community. And it brings us together. It brings the world together. We begin to succeed when the cares of our lives begin and end with the hurt of others. Yeah. We begin to breathe when the wounds of others become relieved with the love of others. Oh. He who looks around to find who's in need has made the best investment in his legacy. I say that love will never force. Coming from Kenner, Louisiana, which is right near New Orleans, and my family being a staple in New Orleans culture, I always had rhythm around me. Rhythm and blues. I heard it all the time. Everybody played, and my mother telling me at 11 years old, you should switch to the piano. Boy, that was the end of it. It's a way of life, and me being the way that I am really fuels my music, the concept of social music, the concept of what Stay Human is. help us to understand each other better. It'll help us to understand ourselves, and it also will help us to have a good time.
Yeah, you're right. All right. Uh, two things in there I noticed. First, the second line. Explain that. Second line. It, it's a concept in New Orleans, if you don't know the second line, where somebody dies. First, there's music for everything in New Orleans. So when somebody dies, they, they perform. And the music, the first line is the family going into the church. It's mournful. It's a dirge, you know, something very sad. And then they come out, and it's the celebration after the service. So like Closer Walk. Yeah. Show me. Sing it. Oh, yeah. Just the closer walk with thee. Y'all can clap. Granted, Jesus is my. Please, yeah. Daily walking close to thee. Oh, let it be, dear Lord. Let it be. Want to ride them out now? Yes. Want to take us back from the cemetery now? One other element I noticed in your social music and video is a tambourine. Where did yeah. that come from? <laughs> tambourine is, you know, it's, it's a part of the Mardi Gras Indian tradition, the church tradition also, the sanctified church. And um, even in Indian music, there's the tambourine. And also in Brazilian music, which is, um, you know, you have the samba, which is also street music. And um, You might want to explain frevo. what the Mardi Gras Indians are. Yeah. The Mardi Gras Indians are when you have the Native Americans and also the Africans. And they, there's that confluence in New Orleans, similar to the Creoles, but it's more of um, a social gathering where they, where they have these ritualistic things that kind of tie into voodoo and that tradition in New Orleans. But 
they meet and they get around drums, similar to Congo Square, and they create this, it's basically a ruckus. And what, what happens is that tradition is passed on. It's an oral tradition in New Orleans where the Mardi Gras Indians have part of it. The, they have their own kind of second line. They have their own dress where they create and basically compete in the different tribes. And the different tribes compete on who has the most flamboyant and beautiful suit. And they march. And they march. Like tambourine. Ico Ico? Yeah, 50 tambourines playing. 50 tambourines and Ico Ico. The kind of tambourine group. Ico! Oh yeah, go ahead, Walter. Ico! Ico Ico Ane! All right, take me to the 21st century, alas. How do we get the millennials involved with jazz? You know, we got this thing um, where we take all of those street traditions and we do what we call a love riot, whereas um, it's like a riot because it's crazy. You get all of these people, and sometimes you tell them, sometimes you don't. You go to a place where there's not usually music, like a restaurant or a subway, street corner. You know, we, we've done it on the slopes in Utah, literally anywhere, and we just start playing, and we create this energy. And you just get all these people from all over the place just coming into it, joining up. Sometimes we put it on, you know, like a Facebook or Twitter that we're going to be at a place. Don't tell anybody in details, and they come. And then what happens is all kind of craziness happens. <laughs> to the point that even at our shows, we'll play, and at the end of the show, you know, the people will be there, and they'll be expecting us to love right. So they'll wait at the end, <laughs> and they're like, are you going to do it this time? <laughs> and we'll march with the whole crowd from a show. i never forget, man, we played at Carnegie in New York, and that's very, like, you know, straight. They don't have that kind of stuff. People standing on top of the seats. Next thing you know, it's like the energy can happen anywhere, basically. We might have to end this with a love ride. Oh, man. But you yeah. need social media for that, right? Well, I not mean, we'll, we'll get to the end in a minute. But yeah. go, before we get to the end, tell me about how social media plays into that. Well, it's, it's more about the, uh, the interactivity. It can be through social media or it can be in person. It, it's just really about the idea of the audience having an experience, and it's an interactive experience with music. It's not about, I don't know about this style or that style, but it's, you can be a part of this experience by joining us. And when you come out, that's what makes the music social. You can share it, you can dance to it, you can cry to it, it's, it's open. How do you get more millennials to connect with jazz and the jazz tradition? It's gotta be an experience. Mm -hmm. It can't be something that's like, a museum piece or something that is... Preservation Hall, no? Uh, I like them. Yeah, that's my boys. Preservation Hall is a more museum piece approach. Yeah, it, it's got to be like, imagine if you grew up and you had an iPhone in your hand all the time. People constantly are trying to sell you stuff. Mm -hmm. And everything is basically about the exploitation of your youthful ignorance. So you take that concept of existence. <laughs> and then you take also the concept of the arts and music education being cut in schools and everything just being kind of upside down in terms of, in the popular culture, you'll, you'll never see anything that's remotely related to jazz or an instrument, except maybe like in an elevator or something like that. So then you have that whole thing that's happening, which makes it actually the perfect timing for you to bring this kind of music and this kind of experience to people because it's completely brand new to them. To them, it's like, wow, 
this is brand new. I've never seen anything like this before. I mean, real music. Right. Suppose, yeah. But the idea is actually, it's old. <laughs> it's just not around. So it has to be something that's unbelievable. Like, you feel it. It's not just you sitting there and watching it. It's like you're a part of it. Can you give me an example of how you do that? Oh, man. You got to come to a show. All right. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, it's kind of... One example of what you could do is, uh, you know, you just don't stay on the stage. The stage is everywhere. <laughs> it's conversational, you know. I'm talking to it's my instrument. It's a voice. Gentlemen, Jean Baptiste. Thank you all. Thank you. That was John Baptiste and Walter Isaacson, recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on July 1st, 2014. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and from across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that both shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can also follow the festival on Twitter at Aspen Ideas and at Facebook slash Aspen Ideas. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. <laughs>